I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Downstairs, we were just talking about the structure of this as a collection. Um, and for those of you who have not yet read this collection, at least in the UK edition, it's in four discrete kind of units or spaces. And I just wondered whether you'd like to say a little about that, how you've demarcated those stories and whether when you were writing them, um, that chronology followed or whether it was a case of shuffling them into that order later. Yeah, it was definitely later. I had a bag of stories and I think I desperately wanted to feel I could do something to make them better, some kind of collective magic that if I put them in the right order that they would they would be better than they were alone. I think organizing a story collection seems foolish in some sense because when I read one myself, I might start with the middle story, I read the last story. There was for a little while a kind of urban legend that in story collections by far the best story is always the second one. Has anyone ever heard that? Um, and so I, I'll very quickly look at the second one. Me too. <laughs> you know, um, I think it's been proven. Um, no comment. <laughs> so in part I'm aware that what I'm doing by putting these in an order is, is something that won't necessarily add up to anything for anyone else. But when I read them all, I thought, well, they have these different, different emotional impacts. Some are grave and bleak, and some are graver and bleaker. Some have a first-person male narrator. Others have a protagonist who's a, a woman, and it's a third-person close. And so I think I just fooled around with trying to build up a little bit of variety and also wondering a little bit what the stories are about. And some days I thought they were literally all the same and all about the same thing. So moving them around didn't do much. But there were ones I wanted to keep apart from each other. They seemed hostile right up against each other. The Grow Light Blues and the Trees of Sawtooth Park could sometimes feel sort of interchangeable to me. And so I wanted to keep them apart so people might not see that. So it's a lot of just kind of covering weaknesses. And um, there's a section, section three. It's just more abstract and it's less narrative a little bit. And Wherever I go, people will say to me, you know, no one wants to read that shit. You have to hide it, hide it in your book. And so that's why in some editions, there's a section 3.1. 
that has some really, really abstract stuff. I'm kidding. That's, those were just things that didn't make it into the book. So I, I guess it's a, maybe it's just an attempt at curation, like as you would with a mixtape. Although mixtape, maybe can one even say that anymore? Yeah, does anyone here maybe know what a mixtape is? Maybe people don't even know is. what a mixtape is. <laughs> I think I don't know what it is anymore. Uh, putting some songs together for someone you're desperately in love with who pays no attention to you, right. thinking if they listen to your choices of songs, they will suddenly feel this incredible erotic connection, but also <laughs> real warmth and curiosity, and that your life will be changed simply because you put some songs in a certain order. So that's my hope <laughs> with these stories. And the book is new. I've yet to hear if it's working. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, thanks for coming to this Apple <laughs> event of the shuffle um, that we're in direct competition with, and competition, competition, don't know what yeah. happened um, Ellie told me there's an Apple event right now, so I just want to thank you all, and I've been waiting to go head-to-head -head with Apple. <laughs> I kind of feel like it's really, that's the giant to slay right now in literature. I think, in my mind, it's you and Apple, and, and in so many different ways. It's Some people say terrifying. Apple, Samsung. I don't. Marcus yeah. versus Apple. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah. It did make me wonder throughout, knowing that Apple event was going today, which is obviously the center of my world, um, so much about this is about technology, whether um, recognizable or um, in some way teeteringly, terrifyingly prescient. For example, for those of you that have not yet read the book, there are mind-altering gases that are kind of like pheromones almost spurted out into the atmosphere at memorials. Um, there are a number of characters here who are either the agents of or um, are afflicted by kind of guinea pig processes by um, shady scientific forces. I just wondered how far you think of yourself as having to kind of um, preempt terms of technological advancement or encroachment upon society, or whether you're just riffing on what you're seeing, um, or it's just hideous nightmares of yours writ large? Or yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the, the gases, uh, you know, spurting into the atmosphere, that, it's a story called Blueprints of St. Louis, and there's a, a married couple, both are architects, and they've They've sort of newly become involved in memorial design um, in an America where terrorism is just more common, and one has to kind of erect memorials a few times a year. Um, I'd spent a bit of time in Berlin, and it's an interesting city for a lot of reasons, but there's also a very kind of conscious and overt attempt to memorialize the Holocaust and different strategies for doing that. And I, th I, so I was writing about this couple that was kind of trying to figure out what they wanted these memorials to achieve. They all tend to be solemn and heavy and kind of grave. And I guess I was just thinking, you know, if I were an architect, you know, you create a space and you want people to feel things in the same way as writers. We create a book, you want people to feel things. And why not sort of have more tools to accomplish that? And if you, if you could mist some kind of chemical into the atmosphere, it, would, it really would just be a kind of natural architectural feature that would maybe ensure that that mental state would come about. You wouldn't have to rely on all the variables of an undrugged person walking into a space. And, you know, I would like if I could, you know, if I could have some kind of drug component in my book, 
just to assist those parts where you're supposed to feel a little more empathy for right. the character, I would do it. Right. I just think, well, in one way or another, we're trying to do it with language. Why not just... So, so in, in other words, it was just a technology that felt at the moment of composition to be a little bit organic and not a pie-in-the-sky invention about, oh, wouldn't it be weird if this weird thing existed? It was meant to not be weird at all, but almost like possibly just the the thing that's that's coming but again hopefully it's tucked into the story and not spotlit because i don't i don't really care about it so much as as an invention as much as like the the way then the architects feel because so pharmaceutical companies are sponsoring these chemicals and therefore they have a little bit of agency they become stakeholders in the memorials right because they're paying for this and so then suddenly the architects feel compromised by working with the pharmaceutical companies. It was really about the sort of personal struggle of dealing, dealing with this. And um, so, and as much as there's new technology, there's also the absence of it. There's a story called Omen in which a, a sort of uh, kind of creepy um, deviant character is frequently grateful that his thoughts can't be read, but is quite aware that that's a sort of obvious hurdle in the tech world, just thought detection. I don't know. I mean, there's like rudimentary stabs at it. And so he's sort of realizing he's among the last generations to live whose thoughts won't be known and trying to figure out how he can take advantage of that. Um, not to issue a spoiler. Um, so I don't know, maybe I've strayed a little bit from the question, but if, if I'm interested in technology, it's, it's much more um, to me connected to just the way it might debase us or build up desires we, um, we can't manage ourselves. And I guess also I think of everything as technology. The glass is a technology that keeps the water from spilling out. Everything is sort of a tool that we're using in one way or another. And it's all sort of horrible. It's in terms of it all being sort of horrible, a lot of the characters in your in this book, in the stories, they consider the body often as a horrible tool or a tool that commits or is useful for horrible acts. There's a, a lot of shame running through certainly the, the first-person narrators, they, they are aware of how shameful their bodies are to themselves, which seems somehow different for them from them being ashamed. Um, they are often abject um, with shame, but they don't feel embarrassed by it. There's, there's not a lot of embarrassment in these books, and the intimacy that's there is one of, of abjection, but it's not one of, of kind of sensitivity and pulling away from... Mm -hmm. um, what could be shameful. I wondered if that's connected in some way to the use of tech in this, that we're supposed to make our lives easier rather than feeling that we're are, meant to debase ourselves. Are you thinking of a specific story with the body shame? I mean, I'm, I know maybe there are, it's all of them, but... <laughs> I guess in particular, I was thinking of in George and Elizabeth, oh, yeah. um, where even George, one of the, the main character, the protagonist, the titular character, George. Indeed, yes. He gives, if that's not a spoiler, he um, is holding a little dog at some point. I've just got a little puppy, so this is an important story oh, yeah. for me. Um, it's a story in which George gets a dog. 
The end. Massive spoiler. That's kind of it. <laughs> yeah, that I is mean, it. But there's this moment where he's plot. holding the dog, and I was holding the dog, and I was like, "This is glorious." And then what happens? You ruined that moment for me. You've ruined I dogs. <laughs> like, I um, reported what I saw. <laughs> um, but the act of touch there and the act of physical intimacy <clears throat> was was one based on kind of abhorrence. Yeah. Um, and recognition of that abhorrence. It's a super gross dog. <laughs> or George is super gross. And George. Both. Yeah. Possibly. Well, George's father died and his therapist tells him to get a dog because he sort of says he doesn't feel anything after his father dies. And, and then he's grieving his lack of grief, which is a thing we get to do now. Um, yeah, I don't, that's an interesting scene to me because I, you know, I, swear, I think I like dogs, you know, in theory. I, although in my family, I'm the one who has been against acquiring one because I would be the dog tender. I don't know, is there a better word? I'd be the, yeah, I'd be the keeper of the dog. And so I would have, I'd just have to factor in the labor part of it while the other people in my family factor in the cuddling and the love and all of that. And so yeah. I've, I've, I've held out. Um, you know, I, I think that George ended up being a character who was, is, is, is quite different from me. And so I, there was a lot that's uncharted. He's essentially someone who has sex with every kind of person in, in every kind of way to the point of boredom. Um, and uh, I have the boredom part, but not the sex with every kind of person part. And uh, I think, I guess I just was looking for some sort of, some sort of discomfort out of that. It's, he's trying with this dog, but, the, but he, he finds he finds touch unpleasant as as if he's kind of op, like sort of he's he's exhausted the possibilities of contact and 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 is now no longer getting this connection he wants he also pays to have someone watch him on the internet there's a this this guy actually his name is guy guy fox guy fox I fox it, it was real guy fox <laughs> and you can pay him and he'll watch you through your your camera, and he just likes to be watched while he's doing his chores. He likes someone to see him. And uh, I don't know why I'm summarizing that story. Uh, the body itself, I guess it just, it just seems like an endlessly complex territory. And when I'm trying to get at some sort of discomfort or unease or even joy, it just, it just seems to really always be there. It just seems like such a rich space to to explore um, and I suppose I'm really not looking to kind of do a lot of joy building and celebratory stuff and I'm, I'm not trying to make people happy and so yeah it may be that I'm focusing on the sort of ways it can fail us mm. and disappoint us a little bit because there's also as much as there is focus on the disappointment of the body there's also salves and ointments and lotions being yeah. applied to bodies and the bodies undergoing processes um, ostensibly to make them stronger or to somehow make them a useful commodity in fact one of the stories called lotion which i think is one of the shortest ones in mm -hmm. the book doesn't really have a central character is the the character is this sense of of ointment and how that can be part of a healing process, but also part of a pharmaceutical need. 
Mm. I noticed in the in the pre-title notes that that originally was not the title of that work, that it was called Prophecy. And I wondered whether um, so much of, of in your novels is about kind of the prophetic and what can be known and explained. Did you feel that that story in particular was kind of a, an allegory for, for how one should act? That's an easy question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, an easy answer. Uh, um, did sure. you feel with that, with that story that you knew exactly how it was going to end? Well, actually, it was never really a story. Um, there's a, a kind of art project slash kind of, I don't know, a magazine called Thing in uh, based out of California, and they invite writers and artists to make something. They'll, they'll make it for you and kind of publish it. And um, a friend of mine did a, a pair of sunglasses, and then there was a kind of a companion text, and the sunglasses had some sort of creepy resonance in the text. And uh, I just had always wanted to um, invent lotion. And so I, I, made, I made this ointment. I made a cream, and uh, it's called Thompson Cream. And you could buy it. Um, Tonight. <laughs> yeah. What's in that bag? Yeah. Um, and so then I wrote a text about sort of what the cream was, and it, the text didn't even have a title. But I think it might have ended up in a different publication later with, with the title "Prophecy," because the 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 cream is actually something that's discovered around areas where something bad has happened is if there's this kind of forensic investigation and they discover a little bit of cream on a tree maybe cream is the wrong word to use in this country but it's like it's thicker well i guess your cream is quite thick here actually i haven't seen it recently so i don't know what's happening has anyone brought some what's cream tonight what's the state <laughs> of british cream i don't know i mean maybe every day it changes like it's like the stock market the cream the crop yeah i guess you know there was just something enigmatic about it and unknowable to me and and I suppose that's something that I love to chase after uh, and uh, something kind of that we invest a lot of desire into but that is ultimately possibly fraudulent because I'm sort of I'm selling this cream and it's in a tin and there was an actual lotion company like a sort of a beauty supply company that made it and I had to come up with the actual ingredients and I was sort of sad because I knew it was a, essentially a fraudulent lotion. It was not going to at all do what I said it was going to do. And I thought people would be right to be very upset if I was going to say, you know, if you rub this cream on things or yourself, that certain certain things might happen. You know, I, was, I was I was promising too much, um, and then I had to put in things like calendula. What, and, what's that? Well, should I not ask that? What's that? I'm not really going to be prepared to give. Someone here must have heard this word. Yeah, it's, it's in lotions. It's oh, a, okay. I don't know. It's a, like a lotion like thing. Is it a plant? Maybe it's plant based? Calendula? It's good, right? If you see it on. It's, so it's, it's nice. Yeah. I'm writing it yeah. It's not, it's not like, you know, biophosphate uh, sugar or whatever. It's, you know, calendula. It just seemed so friendly. That so, reminds me of when you say in one of uh, the beginning of one of your stories, oh, where is it, that April is too friendly a word for the month, hmm. um, and that everyone's just choking on this kind of salt fug and sloping along, kind of peeling the month off themselves. 
Um, and there is this. Oh, you just improved what I wrote, Ellie. That's like I'm so sure unfair. I'm pretty sure that it's you that's did. a you direct just, quotation. You just casually upgraded what I wrote. I don't. I don't know what you. Where were you from. when I was writing this? <laughs> I was smearing something on my body, saying, "What is this? It smells." Nice. You're like, if only this said. Yeah, I was probably chasing after um, a dog, trying to ointment it as a verb. <laughs> God help us. There is a sense that a lot of the. You spoke before about how characters, literally, they are stakeholders in some of these narratives. Just in, in the same way that you're not necessarily in control of the order in which a reader might approach the stories in the collection, do you feel, how far do you feel in control of the arc of it as a collection? Like you mentioned Thompson's, the. Um, yeah. The lab that is a recurrent lab, but in different kind of iterations yeah. or different kind of control networks going on there. Would you want a reader to keep, keep tabs on that lab to kind of guess the chronology? Well, and Thompson, to be honest, goes back to my first book written 71 years ago, <laughs> um, The Age of Wire and String. And Thompson is a figure who shows up a little bit often in place of God. Okay. And I just at the time was very amused by the idea that. God would be called Thompson instead of God. And I can't connect to that anymore. But so I think that I like the blandness of it. It just, it seemed like the blandest possible name. It seemed like it wasn't an attempt to exoticize something, but rather the reverse, okay. to make it plain and banal. And sometimes what happens is I have a lot of fragments of stories and I can't ignite any of them. And there's, there could be a workplace. And, I don't, and sometimes I, I simply just default to really plain names and so the workplace is called Thompson Systems or Thompson Labs and and it's a, it's a placeholder so that when I finally return to the story and maybe have lifted it off a little bit and turned it into something, going back and changing the name seems really treacherous and unpleasant to me. In fact, I had two stories in which there was a character named Ida and uh, I, I kind of couldn't do it. The one was young, one was old, and it was sort of there was no way, real way to reconcile them. And I spent a lot of time trying to decide which Ida would have to get a name change. And so one of the Idas has to turn into Helen, and I can't even really read that story anymore. It feels wrong. Yeah. And no offense to anyone named Helen, because I think it's it's like an adequate name. <laughs> like it's not a death sentence. It's not, it's not the name where you're just like, well, you're fucked. There's nothing yeah. that will ever. Well, Nor is says it. Differently. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. But I, oh, well, now yeah. I'm No, gonna... you will die. As a, like, <laughs> that, that is your future, but. Yeah, more spoilers. So, but that's, you know, that wasn't my decision. No, okay. I wondered whether um, in terms of names, there's um, the story, is it two boys? The boys. The boys, I'm sorry, who are not named. And throughout their, that one is older, one is younger. Yeah. That's how that works. And they often, their faces are kind of obscured because they're wearing these helmets and they're always kind of doffing each other on the, on the head with different things. Doesn't um, that sound great? <laughs> Unnamed a, boys hitting each other over the It's head. a cheery it's tale of Again, it's a, guileless like, youth. <laughs> it's almost an iconic kind of story. <laughs> a man with a dog, two kids <laughs> hitting each other. But I wondered there whether, again, there's something there about intimacy that... That almost isn't, felt for me like, a, as the reader, an intimate act that you had not given them names, mm. that we weren't able to make a network of associations with little Jimmy and little Timmy. Like, they yeah. had yeah. become iconic in yeah. their kind of anonymity. Well, 
The story begins with a, a woman who has announced her sister has died, and her sister has, you know, a, now you know a husband and, and these two little boys, and she goes out there to kind of help the family out, and uh, announces that she herself has daughters and could never really relate to boys. Sort of sees them as, uh, for some reason, aggressive and and unpleasant. To me, the story was in in part kind of tracking this way that she can kind of come to really love them. But at first she sees them almost interchangeably and a little bit anonymously. And so they just, as I was writing that, they just didn't have names and the younger one would be would sound younger and the older one would sound a little older. And when it came time to think about giving them names, it, it just felt really unnatural. Like I couldn't kind of go back in there and do that without the whole thing falling apart. I'm, I'm sure I probably could have, but that's narrated. By, so it's in first person that story, and I suppose it just it just came out that way. That uh, I don't know. The character names too seem so odd to me because the husband is named Drew, and again, you know, it's sort of like slightly below average name. Maybe not always short for Andrew, it turns out. Sometimes just standalone Drew, which I think those are two really different things. But <laughs> um, I think I just didn't want to use that word. It just, if, character names have often, always made me very uneasy. They just, they just seem, you know, fiction, it's so faked, it's so artificial, it's rigged, it's constructed. And I think sometimes when I read it, I, I'm overwhelmed by the constructedness of it. And then making up names seems very egregious and, and kind of unpleasant sometimes. And so I, I, I try to just kind of quickly get it out of the way and not return to it if I, if I can help it. But I think that's how the characters also consider their names. So in the, that story where, which I should remember the name of it, because as with all of them, the Grey Light Blues. Oh, yeah. Carl the main character in that. Yeah. Again, for those of you that haven't read it, this could be described as a, a wonderful spin on a man in the first instance sending a dick pic to his work. In many ways, it's nothing to do with that because no one recognizes what it is a picture of. And instead, everyone just reacts to terrible kind fate of when you take gentle that sorrow. Like, what was that? They think it's yeah, part okay. of his neck. Yeah. Um, and throughout, he's, yeah. you don't get the sense that, that that's his boldest move throughout that yeah. story. Yeah. Um, and it's completely overlooked. And in that, the name of his boss is the one that is almost passed around the employees. Oh, Kipler. Right. Yeah. It almost has a, a Doppler effect to it around the, yeah. the workplace. And so often in your stories, the idea of kind of having a, thi a word or a name for something is to know something mm -hmm. or to feel like you're able, no, I've attached it to myself. I'm able to respond to that personally, mm -hmm. therefore credibly. And it's when words are not possible, where often in, in your stories it's birdsong and people are trying to work out how do they interpret the sound of uh, a wordless cry, or it's static, or it's white noise. And it's very telling how some of the characters are at peace there, where they don't know what's being said, while others, it's really a moment where they're thrown into complete disarray because no longer do they have names for anything. They're no longer to, uh, able to specify what they're encountering. <coughs> so I, I guess I'm wondering whether, do you find that having to have, for example, specific locations for your work 
as with Blueprint for St. Louis, do you specify for need of people to be able to read it and recognise the place? Or is it because you know that there are certain associations with that place culturally? Mm. Or for you, <coughs> is there an, an element of not autobiography there, but kind of self-recognition of your responsibilities and all relationships with, with place as well as with names? It's a really good question. I, when I th think about kind of when I was first really seriously reading fiction, I would often be kind of feel bored and detached around descriptions of place and feel that sometimes we're kind of made to suffer through really extended bouts of setting in a story that aren't tethered to really anything dramatic, you know, characters driving along and looks out the window and then we're gonna have to get some obligatory shit about the mountains and the sky. <laughs> that it's almost just this, this habit of fiction with very little regard to, let's say, it's kind of just the, the dramatic weight of it. And you, you can go through lots of things and you say, well, if I edited out everything that's crucial, there would be almost nothing here. Um, and, and so I think that I, I avoided it entirely for a long time which wasn't necessarily the best reaction. It's just that I felt if, I, if it was just going to be perfunctory, then I, it was disingenuous for me to just kind of slot that in. But then there are certain stories, I think, where I started to almost at random just pick places I, I knew very little about, but that just were specific. Because at the time, it would seem like it's, say, Cleveland, which is a city in Ohio, which is a state in America, or I could sort of do a Calvino thing and like make up a place name. And I had done a little bit of that too. And I found that with the made up place names, there was a kind of like flag waving around that a little bit, like an announcement of inventedness. Right. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And it was drawing attention to the fantastical side of the story. And, uh, you know, you talked about shame earlier. I didn't sort of even really get to address that. But I think when I was really first writing and first getting reviewed, a.k.a., you know, sort of scolded, there was a lot of, I think that what I internalized a lot was this sort of profound dissatisfaction with an excess of the fantastical, like sort of the, the just um, there's too much that was invented. And so if too much is invented, how could we realistically feel much from the work? And, and I had this sense that I had to kind of put a corset around what was being invented. And also there was maybe a, 
a more aggressive conversation about what used to be called realism, that there were the realists who wrote about the here and now, the kind of actual world we live in, and then there were the fabulists who were really just doing kind of finger exercises and just little brainy things that had nothing to do with what it's like to be alive. And I, I certainly didn't see it that way, and I could still half cry reading a Borges story because I find some of that really stirring. But I think that I was looking for ways to kind of make what was invented feel not invented, feel a little more uncanny and uneasy and kind of a little closer to us. And so making up a place name and giving it a, some kind of interstellar character felt uh, like sort of anathema to that. Mm-hmm. And then St. Louis was just was just random. And then I had to go to St. Louis after I wrote that story and answer to this portrait of that city. And then actually in the Grow Light, uh, no, there's a story maybe from my last book called What Have You Done? It was set in Cleveland and it was published in a magazine. And there's a little picture of downtown Cleveland and I describe um, a building as this kind of almost like a long black hook and it's chrome and glass. And I kind of use a little bit of sort of familiar architectural language. But one of the characters is sort of impressed that it isn't just one of these generic skyscrapers that goes up. And then the fact checker for that magazine was really troubled that I'd used the real name of Cleveland, but that that wasn't a real building in Cleveland. So you had to build a real building in Cleveland exactly. just to justify yeah, that. Yeah, and I'm really behind on I'm that. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... I think, though, a lot of it is wrestling with like just the texture of the story and looking for things that feel almost like plain and anchoring so that the, the strangeness can, can have the feeling I want it to have. Mm. And maybe it is connected to earlier a feeling that I was too freely inventing without enough concern for some sort of a, like a deeper emotional portrait. And so that's, that's why these random cities come up and there's a story I set in Dusseldorf where I've never been but it just felt like it was perfectly adequate and there too there's a character who's often visiting a train station waiting for someone who's definitely not ever coming and then I had to go through a lot of fact checking about my descriptions of that train station because I had no interest in the real train station of Dusseldorf none but it turns out that that seems to be like a, a kind of a red flag for editors. If you are going to use a real place, don't make up buildings in that place. <laughs> That's my advice for my children now. Because I have to tell them something, like something that will really prepare them as they go out into the right. world. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. I'm a good parent. <laughs> there's, I don't know why I laughed at that. I'm sure you are. Um, there's, you don't know. <laughs> That's true. Are they in that bag? <laughs> so, <laughs> I wondered as well. You're um, really concerned with my dad. I am. Ellie. I've got one of my strange eyes over there, one of the very distracting people in the front row with my strange expression. I wondered in terms of being fabulous and being realist, uh, there's one character in, in George and Elizabeth, who is not George, who is blamed at one point correctly for decimating the Great Barrier Reef. I wondered how much recent concerns and fears and justified fears about the effect that technology is having on and consumerism is having on the environment and climate change. There was an article I think out today or certainly this week 
um, saying that every novel should address climate change unless it's going to be in the fantasy genre because it should be so central. It's always nice when we're told what to do as writers because we have no idea. No, it's... And, and when, uh, when someone publishes the right. instruction, it's, it's such a relief. It's great. I can finally get my train from Dusseldorf and know that it's going to be going from 10 past 12 um, on platform three. But I wondered whether you... There is a lot of kind of eco-turmoil in your mm. work. Do you feel bound to research that? Or does that feel like it's too far stapling yourself into this kind of binary of, okay, this is realist and this is dystopian conjecture? I, I try to research all the time, but I, I'm batting zero. I don't know if that works. That's a baseball expression. At actually kind of incorporating research into what I write. You know, in the in my novel, The Flame Alphabet, I I did read a lot of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, kind of after I'd written a draft of it because I wanted to be able to sort of justify the way I had tried to reinvent Judaism in that book, because Judaism at the time seemed like the most pliant religion and sort of the least doctrinaire to me and and I happen to be Jewish but in a kind of casual or more ignorant way um, sort of legacy and so I, I I read a lot of nonfiction all the time and I had read The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert which is a really cheery read about what's happening now and there is a section on the Great Barrier Reef and I I just hadn't read anything that explicit about what's what was going on with that. Although the damage she depicts is not it's not explicitly human caused other than sort of the the larger cause of uh, global warming. It's not like a a specific company out there mining so much as just a, a function of warming. So, you know, I think I think what I'm what I noticed that I've done after I've done it is that I'm, I guess I'm interested in, in fiction in, in which things go wrong. That, that to me, the fiction I like generally involves people who want something who then m most likely won't get it or will sort of imperil themselves in the pursuit of it. So that fiction is tracking the thwarting of a desire or the kind of lurching towards some sort of disappointment when that when that desire is met and then that gets enacted in, in all kinds of ways and so we don't lack examples for kind of calamity and um, peril and and so these things I think just are naturally appearing in my stories not exactly in a calculated way and, and you know when I think of that detail with the character you're talking about it seems you know it's like one of a long list of details about her, but you know it's it's a brother sister story, but the the brother doesn't really know his sister. I think there's a line about how she's sort of opted out of the world because of her wealth and fame, and she's you know he he says something like he refers to the city of New York on the phone to her, and she chuckles and says something like it's funny that you still call it that, and like things like that come up because i I think. I'm hinting at like a class of people for whom now there's going to be sort of a new language for our world based on their understanding. It's not in the future where it's no longer called New York. This is someone in the present who's obscenely wealthy and in some kind of social situation that he can't even imagine. And so 
I think all of those things are hopefully functioning to make him feel more estranged from the world he thinks he's in. And that's glorious. Maybe it, that's glorious. At that point, maybe if we turn from the glorious lurchings and opting in of, of characters, does anyone in the audience um, want to ask a question uh, of Ben or about any of his stories that we've maybe been mentioning? You talked about research within your work. I just wondered at what point you kind of sit down and say, okay, there might be this specific place within the idea that's germinating or whatever. Where do you draw that line where I'm going to stop researching now and I'm going to let my imagination run free? Where does that come for you in the process? I think I draw the line on the first day in that often I'm, well, like I'm trying to read a lot about now about um, what's called big data because I kind of just don't, I kind of never understand what's meant by that. And so I'm reading some books about it and I, I think what I'm really doing is just looking for something small that I can productively misunderstand, right? It's like something suggestive that isn't, like I, I'm never going to be the kind of writer who's going to write, let's say, a definitively sort of historical work of fiction that's going to effortlessly sort of, you know, scaffold out how actual things work. I think when I was sort of first reading, I don't know, as, as a teenager, I noticed that I would read a little bit and I had a bad attention span and I would stop reading, but there were no devices then. There was really nothing. One lived out on a veld in a bed. There were no houses. And you just sort of read a little and I would close the book and kind of keep reading in my head. Like I would sort of, it would continue to spin along as it, as it might really for anyone. And I think it took me a long time to realize that I was sort of, that was actually writing, even though it was triggered by something I was reading when I closed the book and kept doing it, I was sort of continuing something and there was some wish fulfillment there. I was trying to make it into what I wanted. And, and so I read a lot of nonfiction. I, I really love, there's a series that Oxford does called The Very Short Introduction. There's sort of little, little lay people books that are not for specialists and they're you know there's one on chemistry there's one on a very short introduction to blood which is sad that that title is now taken because um, then I just think I would have really really enjoyed using that title but I'm reading about big data I'm reading about economics and I think I'm just looking for something or possibly I'm procrastinating because I'm I'm not ready or not capable of writing what I want to write. And so it's, uh, it's sort of hard to say because I just really haven't written a book where I've really needed to do it. I want to do it because I want to fortify what I'm writing with just something that's more interesting than anything I can come up with. Um, but I think I'm, I do it a little perversely and irresponsibly. The, the, the stakes are a lot lower. I think, you know, no one's looking to me to sort of learn what the 70s were really like in New York City. Um, you know, if I wrote a 70s novel in New York City, I would probably all I could do would be to try to entertainingly get it wrong. And that would have limited value. So I, I, 
I'm trying to research all the time, but I'm never really effectively pouring it into what I'm working on. But maybe, maybe that will change. I'm working on a novel now, and it needs help. It needs like a lifeline, and I need to figure out where to steal from so that it can come to life. So possibly my moment is coming. You made a comment about the um, about the artificiality of fiction and um, your kind of struggles with that. But then you also had a really interesting discussion about um, how you sort of rejected realism um, in relation to fabulism. When you're putting words on the page, how do you how do you physically put those words on the page when you're kind of struggling with? You mean what do I look like when I'm doing it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you want to see like a demo? <laughs> Maybe can you can you like go no, through yeah. the brain thoughts? <laughs> I guess I always just was offended by that distinction around realism, and I saw realism itself as a term being seized upon by a certain group of writers. Writers sort of saying that if there are elements of fabulism in it, then it then it couldn't be real. And I think, of, I think about it now in terms of emotional realism. And because I think we know that if we can connect to something emotionally, I know that just has more weight than whether or not it's sort of faithfully depicting like what people's clothes were like in a certain year in a certain city. So, right, there seem to be different, different shades of it. And I, I think that if I'm detecting fraudulence or falsity or sort of hollowness, I just have trouble writing. I just, to me, if I'm not writing, it's really just a sign that I don't care because I don't feel like anyone especially needs me to keep writing. There's so many writers. It's not an industry where we're like, you know, we need more prose this month. We're going to run out. And so I'm really aware of that. I just, you know, and I've written some and it hasn't changed anything really for anyone. And so I don't, sort of feel like I have to just be the sort of machine generating this this stuff. I, I really do have to care. And now I have just ways of tricking myself into caring, like sort of believing I'll die if I won't do this or someone else will die. Someone close to me is like, we have your son. And unless you turn this prose in, you know, we're going to cut his head off. And I'm very disturbed and I, you know, write the story. That was very specific, that example you just gave. <laughs> yeah, I'm not allowed to, and I signed an NDA, I'm not allowed right. to. Yeah. Right, <laughs> It's actually an anagram in all of your short stories, like, help but, you me. Know, but the feeling of realism is, is, is in a lot of ways really important to me. And yet, at the same time, I think I do a lot to kind of counteract that that attempt to just represent what it's like to kind of go through the world. You know, I, I had a story, I think, in my previous book called Rollingwood, and it's about a, a separated couple who are taking turns taking care of their son. It's very, very little is really happening in the story, but at one point the main character and his son are sort of sitting on a hill and uh, a kind of inexplicable aircraft goes by overhead. It's just a little momentary thing, and and the editor who was working with that story was just like, yeah, you, you know, why would you do that? And I think I did it because that plainness felt vulnerable and if, like I, I was, I just wasn't feeling there was enough there. And it's almost like, why put creepy music in a movie when something sort of normal is happening? It's a tool to kind of adjust the, the mood, right? And so I, I am always, I think, looking to 
figure out how to really, really control the mood. In other words, how to kind of more specifically alter the chemical experience one is having while reading. You know, and I know when I read, if I'm reading something really amazing, I feel kind of chemically changed by it, really as if sort of drugged in a, in a way that I don't find in the, in the obvious recreational drugs out there. I haven't, you know, tried every single one. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm straying a little from your, your question, but I care about it feeling really compelling, you know, and I think I'm also aware that everyone has better things to do than read and that, you know, there are things competing for our attention. So I'm trying to f sort of crack that. Sorry if it's supremely boring to keep talking to you about realism, but I was wondering if perhaps you could think about the some of your, uh, what's the word, like kind of ambivalence about it um, to do with the kind of relationship that kind of realism, if I'm thinking about kind of like, you know, 19th century realism, maybe the, the relationship that creates between the writer and the, or the narrator and the, yeah. or the reader, or the, you know, the, whatever, the protagonist and the reader, because I think actually, you know, I, I was reading a book recently in which it describes this area of Bloomsbury very exactly, yeah. very precisely in a way that I recognized. And it was like, oh, hey, I know that road. I've yeah. been along that road. Yeah. And it was very pleasing. Yeah. And it sort of assures you, right, that you're, Sure. Your author has done their research. Your author knows what they're talking about. Perhaps either your author has been there or yeah. looked at a map or whatever, right? Yeah, builds Where authority. It, yeah. <laughs> so then perhaps, you know, in the way that you're describing, uh, you're, you're kind of trying to circumvent that kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, complete trust in your in the, in the the your position as the writer or of the narrator in that kind of way, right? It like changes the relationship because you're no longer... Well, not to be querulous, way. I would say I, I'm, I'm not, but I'm trying to find that connection you talk about in a little bit of a different way and maybe more in terms of the psychological portrait or just the, the sort of the interior uh, look at, at the character. And by, I wasn't really meaning to disparage you know, the writer who does the perfect description of a place, but rather to say, I can't do it. I just, I don't know how, I don't have those skills. And I love really reading a whole range of stuff and it's really important to me to not just read in the sort of category of what I want to do. Because I, I just, I want to, I always, you know, don't like myself well enough to insist on that and I'm hoping by reading outside of my own traditions as much as I can I'm gonna impact what I do so you know I want that I, I, I'm not that interested in sort of ironizing the sort of authorial approach to writing and drawing attention to the to the fabrication or really metafiction at all at the moment and so but I you know I'm hoping people can find connections in yeah the depiction of of states of mind I don't know, the, the first story in the book is called Cold Little Bird, and it's about um, a couple raising a nine-year-old boy who announces he doesn't love them anymore. And, and everything else is sort of normal, and he's just like, I don't really want you to touch me, um, and I'll live in this house, but I don't, I just don't love you. And so he's sort of being chillingly adult, and like, what, what was important, the realism then that was important was the sort of the emotional aftermath of all of that not where is this happening and what does the apartment look like that they're in, right? So like I, I did still have that burden of some faithful reproduction, even though maybe none of us have even ever had that experience, but there was a burden to 
on the one end to me, not make this kid seem so monstrous that you could be dismissive of him and think, well, that's so invented that that would never happen and therefore I don't quite care. And then also to manage the way the parents dealt with such a problem without making them either, I don't know. So in other words, I, I felt as if I had created a problem in which I had to be as realistic as possible, but it, it might not have been in a, in, in a way that we were, we were talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm kind of interested in the process of canon formation and how new generations of readers um, centralize what were formerly, for their parents' generation, maybe peripheral figures and uh, peripherize, not a word, but you understand what I mean, formerly central figures in a literary tradition of their country or whatever. Um, and in relation to that, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about this anthology uh, that you edited for Granta. Right here. Because I felt with that selection of stories, um, what you were talking about a second ago, feeling chemically changed. By yeah. It, I felt the, more or less the entirety of the selection had that impact on me, which was quite rare for especially uh, a selection of living writers, I feel. It didn't feel like a disparate grouping of, I mean, maybe they are your friends or whatever, but it didn't seem kind of a circumstantial collection that maybe there was more of a statement of purpose going on here or something different. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the sense of responsibility you felt in curating that kind of selection. You see what I mean? Sure. Well, I had edited a short story anthology maybe 10 or 15 years earlier called The Anchor Book of New American Short Stories. And, and uh, I had edited a little bit at magazines and just was always really reading a lot of short stories and I've always been fascinated by the form, really obsessed by it and I also believe as a form it can be as complex and intense and I don't know, gratifying as a novel. Uh, there's bad novels, there's bad stories. So I, I th and then I also was teaching sort of from a fairly young age, sort of teaching when I was nine. Um, that'd be really great actually. Um, and so when I was teaching, I was looking at younger writers and seeing what they were struggling with, what they were even interested in, and I was always, as one does, making copies of things and bringing them in and making what we call course packs. And I just thought, well, I don't know, maybe I could just put a book of these together. And after I did it, it seemed like the primary impact to me was that I just angered the people who weren't in it. And I just got a lot of angry letters. It's like, I thought you liked me, and why am I not in your book? And um, I really didn't want to do it again, because it just seemed, like to me, it was sort of personal. And just my criteria was I was just going to read stories over and over again. And if I kind of found a way to lose interest in them, they weren't going to go in. And uh, it, I didn't want my opinion to have any particular weight, but I, I'm not a scholar, so I couldn't really sort of make an argument for significance outside of just the impact these stories had had on me. So anyway, I forgot the anger that I had caused, and I did it again, and I caused that <laughs> anger again. And uh, yeah, I think like one out of nine people are mad at me. Globally. Yeah, right. and I don't know what the acceptable I don't you know, look at the poll every day, but I don't know what the acceptable number is. But yeah, 
It's it's a hard thing to say because I I don't really at the one hand want to I, I have no real interest in saying definitively that these are the important stories, but rather that these are ones that I kind of can't get to the bottom of that that sort of hold their mystery in 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 really interesting ways for me, without being impenetrable, without being standoffish. They just they beguile me and they kind of vex me and um, so. And I think I say in that introduction that I'm really not the person to kind of situate these really historically or to even discuss them explicitly in terms of what some are doing and what, what some aren't. And I'm teaching this semester a course that is just on the very contemporary kind of this year American short story. I just, we're going to like look at things as they come out and I'm, you know, essentially putting together a little bit of a living anthology again. So I don't know. I, I'd like to. I'd like to not have my editorial voice, you know, have that that pressure on it to kind of be definitive. But maybe that's maybe I'm, I'm not fully allowed that. Uh, when I was first growing up and reading, the anthologies were isolated into camps. There was one called the Vintage Book of New American Short Stories, edited by Tobias Wolf really amazing writer, but who in his intro more or less says, these are stories of the heart. They are stories that will make you feel, you won't find that in the so-called postmodern, that was still when that word was used. You won't find that in postmodern stories, which are all about trickery and games, and they're drawing our attention to intellectual issues. I wanted a set of down-to-earth stories that are about what it's like to be a person, you know, in the world, and he was sort of putting up this barrier, and then there would be like a kind of answering anthology to that, and it was called the anti-story, and it was sort of saying we're all in opposition to that, and th that battle is really kind of snoozy and awful in a way, and I think you see a lot of writers, well, I don't know, George Saunders would be a really interesting example of someone who had completely internalized a lot of the traditional methods for making narrative and yet at the same time found a way to kind of wedge in more spectral, fabulous, otherworldly stuff and not even a little bit forfeit any kind of emotional sort of impact. And so I feel like I see a lot more of that now and that battle is kind of over or sort of, I don't, I don't know of, of anyone really connecting to that. So, you know, it's, for me, like I just wish more people would make anthologies, and we could just sort of kind of pass them around. And I, I like to, I like to sort of see what other people are reading and really feeling impacted by. Um, and then you know you have every fall in America, there's a book that comes out called The Best American Short Stories. And it's sort of preposterous to call it that, but then it's also really it's got one editor and. They're saying, you know, that these are the best, and there's something called the O. Henry, and I'm always interested in those. And there's always interesting stories, and then stories that are real head scratchers that, you know, you just can't imagine how a single person on the planet would ever call it the best of anything. <laughs> but people say that about stories I've put in here as well. And you know, now a few years later, I'll read some stories in there and think, eh, oh. I don't know why I ever liked it. <laughs> On that note, making the polls change from two out of nine, hating Ben Marcus. Um, please join me in thanking the LRB and Ben Marcus for being here this evening. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.